That is on page 894, if you have the Pew Bibles, uh, John 8, 12 through 30. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we have some Bibles available, these black Bibles, and there are some golden colored Bibles there, should be on the back table there. Uh, You can feel free to grab one of those, and that uh, is our gift to you if you need a Bible. There are certain things that reveal a lot about who we are. And I think one of those things that reveals a lot about who we are as people individually, reveals a lot about our characters, is how we handle controversy. For myself, I'm someone who tends to be a peacemaker most of the time. Uh, Maybe it depends on the issue at hand, but I like to keep the peace. I like to kind of smooth things out. I don't love controversy. Um... And there was a season of my life when we were ministering overseas where it felt like there was just controversy upon controversy that was in my life. And a lot of it had nothing to do with me. It was just things that I was like thrown into. Uh, Some of it did have to do with me. But it can be this frustrating and overwhelming feeling of of just constantly feeling like you're you're in the middle of of controversy. Um, Some of you are someone you know. Um, might like to might be the person who likes to pick fights, uh, who likes to be the instigator of controversy, and even over just the smallest little things, you, you, the person who loves to stir the pot, right? Play devil's advocate. I think most of us are probably a mix of those two at some points. Again, just kind of depending on what the issue is, right? There's certain things we like to stir controversy about. There's certain things we, we want to keep the peace about. And if you're a Christian, there is an interesting dilemma that we face along these lines. Because we're supposed to do things like contend for the faith, right? We're supposed to give a defense for what we believe. But we're also told told to avoid foolish controversies. We're told to seek to be at peace with all people. This is not always an easy balance. How do we speak the truth, which is going to produce controversy if we speak the truth about Jesus, especially in our culture. How do we do that in love and and seek to balance this idea of of being at peace with all people? I don't know if you wrestle with that. I do all the time. Uh, It's a very difficult thing. And I think we don't want to be controversial just for controversy's sake. But if we are, again, if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to understand how the message of the gospel confronts sinful humanity, confronts people in their sin, confronts us in our sin and in our unbelief, and we need to see how the gospel ought to be at the center of any type of controversy that we're going to engage in. If we're going to engage in controversy, let us let the gospel be the thing that is the cause of the controversy. This week, I, I don't know if it was on Facebook or where it was, I saw a link that had a comparison, a side-by-side comparison between J.I. Packer and John Stott. Uh, if, you've, if you've read uh, much theology or just kind of heard names in, in, Christ, in Christendom, uh, these are two very influential theologians in the 20th century, uh, J.I. Packer and John Stott. And I don't even remember what all the details were, I was kind of talking about like where they were from and all these, all these similarities, but... One of the things that was in there that I didn't know before is that uh, one of John Stott's earlier books that he was really well known for was called Jesus the Controversialist. And it's this like awful like pink cover probably from like the 80s, 70s or 80s. Um, 
But I saw the title of that book, Jesus the Controversialist. And it's really hard to read John's gospel, uh, especially these I am statements, and not feel the tension. Not feel the tension of the controversy, and not feel that Jesus is often and almost always the instigator of the controversies that are going on in John's gospel. He is the controversialist in these encounters with the crowds and with the religious leaders. These statements by Jesus, these I am statements that he makes, and the underlying questions that come out of these statements, which I'm trying to put into the sermon titles. Last week it was, do you want to live forever? This week is, do you want the light of life? These questions, these controversies are intended to stir us a bit in our seats, right? They're intended to make us ask some questions, which is a good thing. So why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus stir the pot? Why does he instigate these controversies? Let's go to our passage in John 8, 12 to 30, and let's find out. And as we're reading through this, I really want you to pay attention. We saw it last week in John 6. Pay attention to the pushback that the Pharisees give to Jesus. And pay attention specifically to the three questions that they're going to ask him, because that's kind of how we're going to break this passage down. Let's go to the text. John eight twelve through 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say to you about, I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declared to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. 
So why does Jesus do this? Why does he confront people in their sin and unbelief? And remember, we've been talking about this the last few, few weeks, that we can't read ourselves into the story too much. We can't put ourselves there. We're not first century Pharisees, right? Jesus is confronting them in a unique time. He's confronting them as the original audience of this account. But we can't read ourselves out of the story either. We can't say, well, this doesn't apply to, to us at all. These questions that they're asking, we would never ask these questions or these, these things that Jesus is confronting. Well, he doesn't confront us in that way. No, he does. All of us, as we sit here today, we need to see how the things Jesus is saying also apply to us. So let's pick up here at verse 12, and I think this is really the heart of this section. There's a lot that kind of flows out of this. This controversy begins to flow out of this, and we see it in the first two words. Jesus says, I am, okay? I am. In the Greek, it's the words ego, ami, and it's the same words that are translated back into the Hebrew to when, Mo, when God appeared to Moses and asked who he should tell the people who sent him, he says, say, I am who I am sent you. So when the Greek, when the Old Testament is translated into Greek, the way they translate that phrase, I am, which is God's name, who he is, the Greek words that get used is ego, ami. So when Jesus says, I am, there is no doubt what he is saying here. There's no doubt that he is claiming to be the only true God. I am. And we're actually going to see that phrase two more times in this passage. I am what? I am the light of the world. This is a very important statement. If you're familiar with John's gospel, John was writing to confront a certain false teaching uh, that was going on. We saw that Earlier this spring when we went through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it's a kind of an early form of Gnosticism, which kind of this teaching that this, everything that's spiritual is good, everything that's physical is bad. There's this light versus darkness kind of contrast. It's a, it's a dualistic approach to the world and to life. It's a little bit like the force in Star Wars, okay? Like there's, there's the good side of the force and there's the dark side of the force. That is, that's kind of what this teaching that's going on at this time that John is confronting. And John's gospel account begins by using some very striking language to talk about who Jesus is, to talk about him being the light of the world. It's, it's darkness versus light language. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's all talking about Jesus. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Again, this is confronting different ideas about creation and, and things that were going on in, in this worldview. Then it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus came into the world, and he shined his light in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome him. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. We saw this language in chapter 5 where Jesus was talking about the things that, different things that witnessed to him. And one of them was John the Baptist. So John came to bear witness about Jesus. And then verse 9 says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. 
And here Jesus is. In chapter 7, we, we read about the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? Jesus is here in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles celebrated the time where they, the people were wandering in the wilderness. If you remember, the, they wandered in the wilderness. They were led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So there was obvious references here to, to God's light, how God provided for them. And Jesus comes. Remember how he talked about last week in, in John chapter 6? You guys ate the manna in the wilderness, right? You, you, the, the manna that came down from heaven, and you praise God for that? Well, I'm the true bread, right? And essentially, he's saying, he's saying the same thing here. Like, you guys are here celebrating this festival, and he's probably, I don't know if it's at night, we don't know for sure, but... I imagine for, for effect, right, Jesus is here in the temple with all these candles lit around him at night, right, at Feast of Tabernacles, and he's saying, I am the light of the world, right? You guys are, you're looking back, you're celebrating God's deliverance, and I'm here. You don't have to walk in darkness anymore. So he's clearly saying this, that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me is the next Part of this phrase. There is no New Testament word for discipleship. In fact, if you look up the word discipleship in the English dictionary, it's not there. Uh, there might be like a, a footnote that it's a like sometimes used word. But like if you, I think if you type in discipleship like in your word processor, like it comes up as a misspelled word because discipleship is not a word that exists in English, and it, there's no word for it. In the New Testament, we, we throw that word around, but it's, this is where it comes from. Follow. Discipleship is following Jesus. It's being a follower of him. That's where, that, that's where we get that concept of discipleship. To be a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus. You see on our, the front of our worship guide in our vision statement, a community of Christ followers. Okay? So we could just say a community of disciples Right? A community of Jesus' disciples. That's who we are. That is what ought to define us. We are people who follow Jesus as his disciples. But what does that mean? Right? What does it mean to follow him? What does discipleship look like? Jesus had a lot to say about following him and about the cost of following him. In Luke chapter 9, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? In other words, be prepared for it to cost you everything. Be prepared for following Jesus to cost you everything. But it's not just all about, you know, oh, it's so hard to be a Christian. It's so hard to follow Jesus. It's not all about sacrifice and how hard it is. There are words of comfort too, which we're going to see next week in John chapter 10, a little teaser for you. In John chapter 10, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
The comfort here in these verses is not in our ability to be smart and obedient sheep, but the comfort is in our shepherd's love and care for us, even when we are dumb sheep and we wander and go astray. And it is a dangerous world out there for sheep at times, isn't it? We've all experienced this. Forget the illusion that living the Christian life is just some fairy tale journey, because it's not. It's not easy. There is a cost to following Jesus, and he makes that pretty clear in his next statement about those who follow him. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When he talks about darkness here, he's talking about the world that he came into that it talked about in John chapter 1. Do you remember what it said? The light shines in the darkness, and what? The darkness has not overcome it. Following Jesus means that we're in the light, and we will have the light of life, and we will not be overcome by the darkness. Hallelujah! Well, I only read up until verse 9 in John chapter 1. But verses 10 and 11 are quite instructive for us as well. Speaking again of Jesus, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, speaking about the Jewish people, right? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Okay? John is, he's setting up his whole gospel account as this, as this contrast between light and darkness, as this confrontation that Jesus is going to continue to have. And it, if you read through John's gospel and you don't feel this rub, you're not reading it correctly. Like, we're not, we don't read this and be like, oh, Jesus is just so nice. He just wants, every, like, yes, he wants everybody to believe in him, but he, he's not just like, hey, guys, like, it's all good. Just come believe in me, right? No, he's, he's getting up in their grill on these things, right? That's the very, that's, it's just laid out from the very beginning. John is making that crystal clear. So this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees is going to show their rejection of him as the light of the world. And we see that here in verses 13 to 18. I'm not going to walk through all of this, kind of just summarize it a little bit. But the debate in these verses is about the validity of Jesus' witness and about his role in judging them. And Jesus keeps pointing them to the Father. He just keeps pointing them back to his Father. And that, that, goes, that all started in John chapter 5 with those passages that we were looking at. And that's actually when they first sought to kill him. It's because it said that Jesus was making himself equal with God. Jesus is making these claims about him being God. And they want to kill him. Okay? So like the controversy is, is right there from the get-go. It's, and it's going to go all throughout John's gospel. <clears throat> So Jesus keeps pointing them to the Father, but they are blinded in their sin and their unbelief, and it shows in their very first question that they ask in verse 19. Where is your Father? Again, Jesus is not pulling any punches here with these guys. His reply in verse 19 is, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. And when he's talking about knowing here, he's not just talking about information. He's not just saying, yeah, you know who I am, the boy from Nazareth, the son of Joseph and Mary, right? He's saying, you don't know me. 
You don't know me personally. You don't know what I'm talking about, who I'm claiming to be. And he keeps talking to them about who he is, and they don't get it. But there's no mystery here as to why this is happening. John has already told us why this is the case. Earlier, John said, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Do you know where that comes from? John chapter 3. Right after the verses that we read for our assurance of pardon. John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world, right? Most famous verse, and we love to quote that verse, and we ought to quote that verse. But... Right after that, he says, the people love the darkness rather than the light. And what's the point here? It's that it's not God's fault that the Pharisees love the darkness rather than the light. It's not God's fault that they hated the light and did not come to the light because they didn't want their works to be exposed. And as we saw last week, this is, this is so important. Jesus said, no one can come to me Because they won't, right? They're unwilling to and they can't. Because they love the darkness. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, that picture of drawing was the resistance when the disciples are fishing in John chapter 21. It says they can't can't haul the net up out of the water because there's so many fish. Right? That's That's what our sin is like. It's like that net that's dragging us down. No one can come to the Father unless he does the work of overcoming that resistance and by himself brings us to himself, draws us to himself. Unless Jesus shines the light of his grace into your life, you will never believe because you love the darkness and you would rather walk in the darkness. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian yet, you might be like, man, that sounds really harsh. Who is this guy standing up here telling me that my life is in darkness? Well, first of all, my friend, I want to say, I know what it was like to walk in darkness. I know what it was like to be totally consumed with myself and not being willing to get near the light. But I also know what it was like for God to drag me, right? To shine the spotlight of his love and his of his grace into my dark and dead soul and to make me alive. And believe me, I don't want to go back to that darkness. And neither do you. If you're in Christ, you don't want to go back to that darkness. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm not here to say you're this horrible person, that you're a bad person. Because one, I think if you're honest with yourself, you know you're not a good person. And two, Jesus does that job a lot better than I can, okay? So I'm going to let him do it for me. He'll tell you that you're a bad person. And we see him do this in his next interaction. Verses 21 to 24. Verse verse 21, he says, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. 
Again, they obviously don't know what he's talking about here because they say, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? But then he explains to them what he means in verses 23 to 24. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is the ultimate test. Unless you believe that I am he, and literally, the word he is not here in the Greek, okay? Jesus literally says, unless you believe that I am. It's that ego a me. It's only two words. We put the he here in English so it reads easier. But he's literally saying, unless you believe that I am. Another clear statement of divinity. And again, we're, if you keep reading in, in John, we're going to see, the, the, I think, what is the biggest showdown. Again, spoiler alert. But we're going to come back around after all of these I am statements, and we're going to do John chapter 8 before Abraham was I am. Okay? So go home and read the rest of John 8. Uh, it's, it's awesome. But Jesus is already priming the pump here. He's already, this I am statement, he's, he's getting it in there. And he's, he's trying to make it clear what he's saying. Okay? Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In other words, you're not able to save yourself from your sins. He's saying that he alone is the only hope that we have. He is the only way to not walk in darkness and to not die in your sin. To which a proper reply from the Pharisees should have been, Thank you, Jesus, for explaining that to us so clearly. Now we see that we should believe in you like you've been telling us all along. But instead, they pose this third and final question, a question that further exposes their unbelief and their unwillingness to come to him. Verse 25. So they said to him, Who are you? I mentioned a couple weeks ago that Jesus' most important question in the Gospels is, who do you say that I am? He asked this to his disciples. And do you remember what Peter's reply was to that question? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how did Jesus reply? He didn't pat him on the back, right? He didn't say, you're so smart, Peter. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay? That's just another rewording for John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You're You're not figuring this out on your own, right? Is what Jesus is saying. I have to shine my light on you, Peter, and everyone else, if they're gonna believe The Father has revealed this to you. My Father has opened your eyes to see me, the light of the world, to believe, to confess your faith in me, so that you no longer ask the question, who are you, like these Pharisees here who are still blinded in their sin. And Jesus' reply to them in verses 25 and 26 points them directly to the Father. He says, oh, I already read that. So that reply um, 
or did I, I did not read that, sorry. Verse 25 and 26. So who are you? Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Then John tells us in verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. I've shared this illustration before about um, you know, looking for something that's right in front of your face and not being able to find it. I don't know if anybody else uh, is, is good at that like me, uh, but it's, there's, the, there's something in our house. Uh, there's a laminating sheets. Um, you know, I know where the laminator is up on top of the printer, and you know, Lindsay is like, oh, the laminating sheets are you know, right in this, in this cabinet, and I go there every time, and I can't find them. She goes, and yeah, they're right there, exactly where she said they were. And the same thing happened with Lily, like, a couple weeks ago. I'm like, I cannot find these things, and she just goes in the room and walks out, and I'm like, ah. Or if you've ever had the experience of, you know, where, where did I put my sunglasses, right, and they're on top of your head, or where's my hat, and you're wearing your hat, right? feel like you're crazy. But the evidence is, is right in front of you, right? The evidence is, is clear, And other people can see it. It's right there. But for some weird reason, you can't see it. We have evidence everywhere of who God is. We come here. We celebrate. We call it the the ordinary means of grace. The word of God that we read and we preach and we pray. We have the sacraments The meal where we remember who Christ is and what he has done for us and we celebrate. We have prayer in our worship. You you sit at home and you read the scriptures. You have evidence right in front of you of who God is. Or you share your story, you share your testimony, you share what God is doing in your life and you remember who Jesus is. You remember what he has done to save you. Those signs, those, that evidence is everywhere in front of us. And that's what Jesus points us to next. He says in verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus tells them how they can know who he is. In verse 28 there, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Again, it's only those two words. You will know that I am when you have lifted up the Son of Man. What is he talking about, about the Son of Man being lifted up? He's talking about the cross, right? He's talking about being lifted up from the earth being nailed to the cross, that ultimate display of love where the perfect Son of God who came into this world of darkness and shined his light of love and life and hope and laid down his life, his very own life in our place so that we might live. That is what he is talking about here. And that is the good news that all of us need to be reminded of. But it's not just to know about this, right? It's not just to know like, oh, this happened, like Jesus you know, said he was going to die on the cross, and he died on the cross. It's not even just enough to know it and to, to intellectually say, okay, yeah, I believe that. It must transform and inform our lives. 
it must translate into following Jesus. It must, must translate into discipleship. So how does that happen? How does this transform and inform our lives? Something fascinating with this I am statement. This is the only one of the seven I am statements that Jesus actually also applies to us. In, John, or in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now clearly Jesus is not saying, you are, you know, the Son of God and the third person of the Trinity, just like me. He is the only Son of God. He is the only true light of the world in the sense that he says. But he also says of us, you are the light of the world. What does he mean by that? It's not our light, right? We don't shine something from within us. When we say, the church, we are the light of the world, the light doesn't come from something we do, something we have to offer. This isn't getting the light of life that Jesus talks about as some force, right, that radiates off of us, like good vibes and all these like new age things. That's not what this is about. It's Jesus. He is the light of life. And if he is in us, he's going to shine through us so that we are the light of the world because he's in us, okay? And I put the question to us in the beginning, do you want the light of life? I don't mean do you want the positive benefits that come along with being a Christian. I don't mean do you want some light in your life, like do you want happy and good things to happen in your life. That's not what it's about. Do you want the light of life? Do you want Jesus? Is he enough for you? Are you willing to live for him so that the world around you sees that he is enough? Sees that light and gives glory to God in heaven. And you might be like, oh man, people knew like what was going on in my life right i've got good news for you this doesn't require perfection on our part it doesn't require us to to get our act together and i also want to say i think when jesus says you are the light of the world he's, he's speaking to his church right collectively and you think about the idea of of all of us together collectively the effect that the light of christ and the light of the gospel can have in a dark world So you don't have to have it all together yourself. You don't need to be perfect. You need to be together with a bunch of other broken sinners that Christ decides to use for his glory. And Jesus has already taken care of that part about not being perfect. He's already lived and died for us. He's already cleansed us from our sin. He is the light of life. Brothers and sisters, let us... Let him shine his light through us so that the world around may see him, may see the Father, and may give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we come and 
we just acknowledge that it is not comfortable to be confronted in our sin and our unbelief. It's not, conf- it's not comfortable to, to admit uh, the reality of, of the darkness around us. It's not comfortable to, to try to walk around in this, in this dark world and try to follow you. But God, we thank you for the light of Christ. We thank you for who he is, what he has done, how he laid down his life for us, how you brought us to yourself, how you shined the light of your grace and your glory and your love into our lives. And we give you all the glory. God, it's nothing we have done to be good enough, to be clean enough, to be holy and pure enough in your sight. It is because Jesus has come, he's expelled the darkness in the world, he's expelled the darkness in our hearts, that we can come, that we can stand confidently before you, that we as your people can gather here and can ask that you would continue to shine the light of the gospel. And God, as we just think about two years here, worshiping here in this building, celebrating, preaching the gospel, loving one another, loving our community, God, we ask for many more years. We ask that you would do great and mighty things beyond what we can even fathom. Not so that we can pat ourselves on the back and say how awesome we are, but because we can point other people to you. We can shine the light of the gospel in this world around us that so desperately needs it. So Lord, would you have your way? Would you continue the good things that you have begun? We thank you. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our last.